If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, and ask you to open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians, to listen carefully as I read verses 17 to 40, picking up this morning where we left off in our study last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 17, and I remind you, this is the inspired, the inerrant Word of God. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord is a slave, is a freedman of the Lord. And likewise, he who is free when he was called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain there with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I give, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. The present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxiety. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. The married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. The word of the Lord. 
And thanks be to God for this reading of His Word. Well, this is now our third Sunday here in 1 Corinthians 7. As we've been working our way through this inspired chapter, we've discovered the Apostle Paul is addressing a specific concern about marriage and sexuality that the Corinthians had raised in a letter they had written to him. It appears that a certain group within the Corinthian church had come to the conclusion the only way to live a pure and a godly life before God was to remain completely celibate. As a result of this unbiblical ethic, marriages were beginning to break down in the church. Singleness was being heralded by some people in the church as a kind of spiritual and moral high ground. Now in response to their written letter, Paul is going to respond to them by affirming what is good and right in their point of view and by correcting and qualifying what is wrong and misleading. As we've already observed in previous weeks, the guiding principle that runs throughout this chapter and that ties all of Paul's inspired instruction together is stated most clearly in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Paul's general advice for the married people is to remain married, for the single people to remain single. But as he applies this general principle to the various groups within the church, it becomes clear that there are many exceptions. Paul's goal here in this chapter is not to impose an inflexible law regarding either marriage or singleness because he recognizes it is often good and right for single people to go ahead and get married, and at times it is even permissible for a married person to revert back to the single life. The first 16 verses of this chapter, Paul has been giving instruction primarily to those men and women in the Corinthian church who are married, widowed, or divorced. But as we move this morning into the second half of the chapter, as we trace Paul's argument through the remaining verses, we see that Paul now has an important word to say to those men and women in the church who have never before been married. Indeed, this is probably the most direct and the most specific teaching we have anywhere in the Bible regarding the single and the celibate life. A few weeks ago when we started this study in 1 Corinthians 7, I asked all of the singles here at Rosedale to bear with me, to be patient as we worked our way through the instruction about marriage, and I promised that Paul would have something practical and relevant to say to you. And today is the day to deliver on that promise. As we make our way through the remaining verses of chapter 7, we are going to be reminded that singleness is not a problem to be fixed. Singleness is not a negative condition to be overcome. Rather, Paul teaches us that singleness and celibacy is a good and useful gift from our loving and gracious God. Now that is a critically important truth for all of us to take away from this text in a culture that does not often view singleness and celibacy in a positive way. But According to God's word, singleness is not a problem to be fixed. With God's help this morning, we're going to examine some of the benefits and some of the challenges that come along with the single life, the importance of learning to be content, whatever our marital situation may be. So that's where we're heading this morning. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to move beyond the subject of sexuality into a new subject that Paul will begin to deal with in chapter 8. 
Well, over the past few weeks, I've tried to drill into our minds and hearts the biblical truth. Our marital status does not provide any basis whatsoever for us to feel superior to another person or else to feel inferior to another person. In His sovereignty and His wisdom, God has chosen to grant the gift of marriage to some of His children, and He has chosen to grant the gift of singleness to others. And both of those gifts are to be received with gratitude and thanksgiving from the hands of a good and loving Father who knows exactly what we need in this life, even if it is not always what we want. Back in first century Corinth, there was a tendency for the single and the celibate members of the church to be, to feel superior to the married people in the church. And perhaps today in the 21st century, we wrestle with the opposite tendency for married Christians to feel superior to single Christians. But Paul's teaching here in this chapter demonstrates both of these tendencies are false and unbiblical. From a strictly spiritual point of view, single Christians and married Christians stand on level ground, and as such, we are called to love and to accept one another in whatever marital status we may be in. But we've already observed in chapter 7, and we'll speak about at greater length today, the Apostle Paul has a definite preference in this regard. Paul has a preference for singleness, and we're going to examine some of the reasons for that preference in the second half of chapter 7. You really can't miss it. You really can't get around it. Paul thinks and Paul speaks very highly of the single and celibate life. And he is speaking to us as someone who knew firsthand what it was to be married and what it was to be single. What needs to be very clear in our minds as we process Paul's words about singleness is that Paul is not arguing in this text that singleness makes us spiritually superior. Rather, Paul is making the case in this chapter that singleness is a sensible and a logical choice for Christians to make. From a practical point of view, Paul was convinced the single life was a more sensible and logical way of life, but he was absolutely opposed to any notion in the church that singleness was spiritually superior. We need to keep that distinction between superiority and sensibility very clear in our minds or else we might easily jump to the wrong conclusion that Paul had some kind of a hang-up with marriage and sexuality. And that wasn't the case at all. As we're going to see in these verses, Paul's preference for singleness and for celibacy was based purely on what he believed was more practical for the Christian believer while recognizing that this way of life was not going to work well for everyone may also be the case that the Apostle Paul is pushing back in this chapter against some unhealthy and unhelpful tendencies in his own culture and his own upbringing and training as a Jewish Pharisee. Paul seems to be countering here some common Jewish ideas about marriage and sex he had inherited as a young man and were doubtless still floating around in the Christian church. Some of these Christians had been saved out of a Greek background and they were developing an unbiblical theology about celibacy. But on the other hand, some of the Jewish Christians in the church held an equally unbiblical preference for marriage. Mentioned last week that many observant Jews in the first century saw marriage and childbearing as a divine mandate rooted in Genesis 2 to the point where unmarried people were sometimes looked at with disdain along with any women who are biologically unable to bear children. 
Among some of the Jewish Christians in Corinth, there was a residual stigma associated with st- singleness. And I think that Paul, that makes Paul's perspective here in these verses even more remarkable. As a Jewish man who voluntarily chose the single life because of the freedom it gave him to serve God to fulfill his ministry mandate. Jewish culture in the first century had wrongly turned marriage into a requirement for obedience. But Paul now now clarifies in this chapter, marriage is not required by God. Marriage is not needed in order to live a life that is spiritually fruitful and glorifying to God. And so just as Paul has already encouraged the married people to remain as they were in their relationship, so now he turns to the singles and he gives them the same advice. It is good for single Christians to remain as they are and not to actively pursue marriage. General principle here in chapter 7 is the same for married people and for single people. And in verses 17 to 24, the apostle illustrates this principle in two different ways. First of all, by pointing the readers towards the religious ritual of circumcision and then pointing us towards the social reality of slavery. Although circumcision and slavery probably seem fairly remote and irrelevant to Canadians living in the 21st century, back in 1st century Rome and Greece, these were both live issues that would have been discussed and debated in every Christian church. As odd as it might seem to us today, circumcision was probably the most controversial and divisive subject among the first generation of Christians due to the fact that so many of the first Christians had been converted to faith out of Judaism. Back in the Old Testament Scripture, we discover God set apart the Jewish nation as His special people. He gave them the mark of circumcision as a way to remind them of His covenant promises to visibly set them apart from the other nations. In the Old Testament, Jewish parents were required by Mosaic law to circumcise their male infants. This had been the universal practice of Jewish families and parents for hundreds of years leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ and the initiation of the New Covenant. One of the big questions that came up repeatedly in the early years of Christianity was whether Gentiles who profess faith in Jesus Christ should be compelled to be circumcised, whether the Gentiles should take upon themselves and upon their children the covenant sign that God had given to Israel. A certain group within the early church known as the Judaizers were strong supporters of circumcision and went so far as to claim that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. But as we may be aware, the Apostle Paul took a very strong, unwavering stand against the Judaizers, claiming that they were destroying the gospel of God's grace by adding human works to the cross of Jesus Christ. Although Paul himself was a Jewish man who was circumcised and was not in principle opposed to this practice among the Jews, Paul was adamantly opposed to making it a requirement for the Gentiles or for membership within the Christian church. Over in Acts 15, you can read about an important gathering of apostles and church leaders who came together in Jerusalem to discuss the circumcision issue and who were led by the Holy Spirit to give an authoritative declaration that circumcision was not a requirement for salvation, that the Gentiles were not to be forced to get circumcised in order to please their Jewish brothers. And now in 1 Corinthians 7, The Apostle Paul is basically restating the same principle we find in Acts 15 and elsewhere in the New Testament, the fact that circumcision does not make a person spiritually superior or inferior to anyone else. 
Gentiles who were circumcised at the time of their conversion were under no obligation to go under the knife. And Jews who were circumcised at the time of their conversion had no reason to be ashamed. No reason to take drastic measures to overcome or reverse it. By the way, when Paul speaks in verse 18 about a circumcised man seeking to remove the marks of circumcision, he is referring there to a real surgical procedure that was sometimes performed in order to make a Jewish man appear to be Gentile. Back in the first century, when it was common practice for men to bathe together publicly, Jewish males who lived in predominantly Greek and Gentile cities sometimes tried to avoid persecution and ridicule by having this surgery performed. But Paul tells them here in these verses, such drastic measures are totally unnecessary. There's no reason whatsoever for a Jewish man to reverse his circumcision. There is no reason for a non-Jewish man to go under the knife. And the reason for it is given in verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Brothers and sisters, in the New Covenant Church, God has eliminated the barrier between Jew and Gentile. He has declared in the book of Galatians, the true children of Abraham are Christian believers who have put their faith in the true Messiah and Savior of Israel. Because of that truth, circumcision is now completely irrelevant for the Christian church. It does not matter in the least whether you're circumcised or whether you're uncircumcised because this is not the basis of a Christian's acceptance with God, nor is it the the marker of our identity as, as God's covenant people. New Covenant Church, we do not circumcise our infants as a sign of the covenant. We baptize believers who have already been circumcised spiritually in their heart. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, marriage is a bit like circumcision in the sense that it has no bearing whatsoever on our identity as God's chosen people who have been washed clean in the blood of Christ. If you were married at the time of your conversion, there is no biblical reason why you should seek to be single again. If you were single at the time of your conversion, there is no reason why you should feel obligated to get married. God accepts single people just as freely, just as joyfully as He accepts married people. And your marital status has no bearing whatsoever on your spiritual position. Paul's first illustration here in this passage was taken from the realm of religious debate. His second illustration of slavery has been taken from the social realm of ancient Rome. Although slavery is still very much a problem in our world today, there is an overwhelming consensus in Western society that slavery as an an institution is immoral and oppressive. We've grown up in that society. We almost assume that. It's the air that we breathe. But that was not the case in the world that Paul and the Corinthians inhabited. This was a world and this was a culture where slavery was a firmly entrenched institution. It was a part of daily life in the Roman Empire. One commentary I consulted this week suggested that up to one-third of the total population of Corinth were slaves. And without doubt, that number would have included many members of the Corinthian church. Today in our, cult, in our culture, when we speak about slavery and think about slavery, we tend to view it through the lens of European and American history. And because of our own dark history in this, in this matter, we often associate slavery with kidnapping, selling, forced labor of Africans who are considered to be subhuman at the time. But back in the first century, slavery was not quite as oppressive and inhuman. 
In ancient Rome and ancient Greece, men and women would sometimes voluntarily sell themselves into slavery in order to pay a debt or to, to secure a guaranteed living. And although it's doubtless true that many Roman slaves were abused and mistreated, many others lived very happy and productive lives, sometimes passing their days in better living conditions than those who were free. Because in a society that didn't give you social assistance, assistance at least as a slave, you knew you'd have food to eat and a place to stay. When Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians nearly 2,000 years ago, some of the people in the Corinthian church were slaves. Other members of the church were free. And the point he's making here is that your social status as a slave or as a free person doesn't have any bearing on your salvation and your acceptance with God. Although Roman society made a clear distinction between those who are slaves and those who are free, in the Christian church, all people are considered free and equal. And it is quite likely that in ancient Corinth, some of the slave owners were sitting in the same pew as their slaves and were recognizing their slaves as spiritual equals and as brothers in Christ. You may be surprised to know this, but there is in fact a short book in the New Testament where Paul writes to a Christian slave owner named Philemon and encourages him to receive back a runaway slave and to treat him from now on as a Christian brother. Now, understandably, some of us have been troubled by the fact that Paul seems to turn a blind eye towards the institution of slavery, but I think that point in itself is highly debatable. Because at the end of the day, Paul's purpose in writing these New Testament epistles was not to instigate a social revolution or to overthrow the Roman government. Paul's point in the context of 1 Corinthians isn't to condone slavery or to condemn slavery, but rather to recognize a grim reality of life in the first century and to enable Christians living in that time period to live for God's glory under social conditions that were often less than ideal. So Paul tells them here, whether you were a slave when you became a Christian or whether you were a free person when you became a Christian is really not that important because your social status is not what commends you in the eyes of a holy God. To be set free from the chains of sin is of far greater significance than to be set free from physical change. Although we should note in verse 21, Paul gives his opinion that Christian slaves should choose freedom if the opportunity ever presents itself. Although we do not find a full-blown abolitionist perspective in the New Testament, Paul's teaching and the nature of the Christian gospel moves us strongly in that direction, and it is not a coincidence that in every society where the Christian faith has taken a deep root, slavery has eventually been abolished and has been viewed as a terrible and inexcusable crime against humanity. But here's the point of these illustrations. From the religious perspective, God doesn't view circumcision as any better than uncircumcision. From a social perspective, God doesn't view free men in a more favorable light than He views slaves. All of us stand on equal ground before God, whether we're circumcised or uncircumcised, whether we're slaves or free, whether we're married or whether we're single. There is a remarkable equality that flows out of the Christian Gospel reminding us that when we are united to Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, there is absolutely no basis for a posture of superiority. This is part of the great beauty of the body of Christ. 
that as Christians, we can come together as male and female, as people with different skin color, as people with different levels of education, as people with different social positions, as people who are married and single, and we can embrace one another as members of the same spiritual family who are equally loved by our Creator and who are destined to spend eternity with one another in His kingdom. And friends, one day when we arrive at last in that kingdom, the relative advantages and disadvantages that we either enjoyed or endured here on planet Earth will seem terribly insignificant. From the vantage point of eternity, the single person is not going to be riddled with regret that he or she never got married during their life on Earth. The slave is not going to be embittered because he didn't live as a free man during his life on Earth. And part of Paul's point in these two illustrations is to remind us we must embrace an eternal perspective and we must apply that perspective to our lives in the here and the now. Is it desirable for a slave to be set free in this life? Of course it is. If the opportunity for freedom presents itself, be sure to take it, Paul says. But at the same time, don't think that you can't live the Christian life in that state and still be content. Is it desirable for a single person to get married in this life? Well, that depends, says Paul. But whatever you decide about marriage, and for whatever reason you decide it, don't think for a moment that you can't, can't live a satisfied life that pleases God if you spend your years in singleness. You know, brothers and sisters, some of the things that seem so very important to us today will not be nearly so important in the light of eternity. And perhaps some of us here today need to have our limited, short-sighted perspectives recalibrated by this text. The quality of car that is sitting in your driveway will be a very little concern when you are in, in the kingdom one day. The number of times that you went on vacation will barely cross your mind when you are living in the new heavens and the new earth. How physically attractive your husband or your wife was will not seem that significant when you are face to face with the unparalleled beauty of Jesus Christ. Whether or not you are sexually active on planet earth will not be on the radar in eternity. And I don't think that we're going to be sitting in the kingdom of God comparing notes about who had it better back in the old fallen world. And so Paul says, take an eternal perspective. Apply it to your life now. Allow that ultimate eternal perspective to influence all of the decisions that you make in this life. The way that you choose to invest your time and your talent and your treasure here on this earth. You know, brothers and sisters, part of spiritual growth, a large part of spiritual maturity is learning to accept God's sovereign will for your life and learning to view your life in the light of eternity. As Christians, we must believe that God loves us. We must believe that God has a good plan, even if our circumstances here on earth are not what we hoped they would be and not what we think that they should be. And so if you're here this morning and you're in a challenging marriage, don't conclude from your present situation that God doesn't love you or that God's plan for you is not good and gracious and kind. And if you're here this morning as a single person who longs to get married but has not yet found the right person, don't conclude from that struggle that God has forgotten about you or that He has consigned you to a lifetime of misery. 
The God that we serve, friends, is a sovereign God. He is the God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And although we cannot always understand His purpose and His plan in the daily grind, we can always trust in His unfailing character. We can always trust in the unfailing love of our God. We can always know that He sees the big picture that you and I don't always see. And part of growing in your walk with God, part of maturing in your faith, is learning to submit yourself to God's will, learning to be content in any and every situation. There are married people sitting in this room today who need to learn contentment in a rocky relationship that is not going well. By the same token, there are single people in this room today who need to learn contentment even though you go to sleep every night in an empty bed that you wish was filled with someone to love. But the secret of contentment is not scrambling frantically to change your life circumstance or to artificially engineer happiness. The secret of contentment is coming to realize that God has a good plan in every situation and then putting into practice the truth that we read in verse 17, leading the life that God has assigned to you and to which God has called you. You know, I'm always amazed by the Apostle Paul. And I'm always encouraged as a preacher to know that Paul was a preacher who practiced what he preached. Carefully study the life of the Apostle Paul. You will discover that during his life here on earth, Paul endured more hardship, more adversity than most of us in this room will ever know. Paul was beaten. Paul was persecuted. He was imprisoned. He was treated unfairly. Paul was slandered and misunderstood. Paul was abandoned by some of his closest friends and colleagues. Paul was at one time a married man, but perhaps he was abandoned and divorced by his own wife when he became a Christian. Paul worked tirelessly for the cause of Christ. He never spent a day in luxury and ease. And at the end of the day, he was beheaded and executed by his own government. In spite of all these challenges, in spite of all of those life circumstances that could have easily driven him to depression and despair, Paul tells us in Philippians 4, the passage we read at the beginning of the service, that he had learned the secret of being content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to to abound, Paul says. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Example of the Apostle Paul, many other faithful believers reminds us it is indeed possible to be content even when our life situations are not what we think they should be. And the secret to happiness in this life is not a wild race to change all of your circumstances. The answer to contentment is bowing humbly before the sovereign God who loves you and finding your ultimate satisfaction in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Singles, I know that some of you long to be married. I know that some of you pray regularly for God to bring the right person into your life. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that desire and longing. It is something that is normal and natural and good. But we need to know today on the authority of this text, if we do not learn to be content as a single person, if we do not find our satisfaction and our reason for living in Christ, then we will never be content if and when we eventually get married. 
Discontented singles make for discontented spouses. And the reason for that is that your future spouse is not Jesus Christ. Your spouse is not able to do for you what only Jesus Christ can do. You know, some of us married people tend to look at our spouses and our children, our family relationships for ultimate satisfaction only to realize that our spouses and our children are not perfect people. And sooner or later, everyone that we love is going to let us down. Sometimes our spouses disappoint us. Sometimes our children break our hearts. And if you think that marriage will solve all of the problems in your life, if you think it will fill that emptiness in your heart, you may just discover a little further down the road that marriage actually compounds the problems in your life. It makes your life here on earth even more complex, more confusing than it already is. Healthy marriage is a wonderful gift from God. But even the best of marriages aren't perfect. A loving and a godly spouse is a wonderful gift from God, but even the best of spouses cannot stand in as a replacement for Christ. Sex within marriage is a wonderful gift from God, but even the most fulfilling sex life cannot substitute for true intimacy with God. And so single brothers and sisters do not fall prey to the devil's lie and think that marriage is the silver bullet that will finally make you satisfied with your life. Because the fact is, if you do not learn contentment now as a single person, you will never be content when you're married. If you don't learn to find your ultimate satisfaction in Jesus Christ right now, you will never find satisfaction in your future spouse and your future children. I think many of us think that we need to drastically change everything. We need to drastically rearrange our lives in order to be successful and satisfied Christians. But Paul reminds us here in this passage, it is possible to be content. It is possible to be satisfied exactly where you are at the present moment. You can be content with the job that you have right now. You can be content with the income you have right now. With the house you have right now with the car you have right now, with the marital status that you have right now. If you are a single who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the truth is you have everything you need to be content. You have everything you need to be fulfilled and obedient. Single brothers and sisters, never believe the lie that singleness is a problem you need to fix in order to be happy in this life because it is simply not true. And married brothers and sisters, let us never give the impression, either intentionally or unintentionally, that single people in our lives and in our churches are second-class citizens, or that single people need to get married in order to fit in, to be complete. Singleness is not a problem to be fixed. It is a good and gracious gift from God. And those fellow brothers and sisters who possess the gift of singleness and celibacy are co-heirs of eternal life that we are called to love and to accept exactly as they are. The first, the most important lesson in this text today is that contentment is not based on external circumstances and singleness is not a problem to be fixed. But we move on now to consider some of the tremendous blessings and benefits that come to single life. 
In past weeks, we've already observed the fact Paul prefers to live his life as a single and celibate man. And now in the concluding verses of chapter 7, we find out why that is. Well, some of us in the Christian church have convinced ourselves there is nothing all that great about the single life. The Apostle Paul saw singleness and celibacy as an incredible advantage for service in Christ's kingdom. Paul has already spoken in earlier verses to single people who were previously married, but now in verses 25 to the end of the chapter, he turns and he speaks specifically to those men and women in the churches who have never been married before. And in the process of speaking to this specific audience, Paul describes some of the practical benefits of singleness that he finds particularly attractive and compelling. First benefit of the single life described in verses 28 to 31, and the apostle contends that singleness spares a person from many worldly troubles. One of the worldly troubles that Paul had in mind here is connected with the present distress that he mentions briefly in verse 26. There's been a great deal of discussion and debate about what exactly that distress may have been, but given the various options, I tend to believe Paul was referring to a serious famine that was sweeping through the Greek and Roman world at the time he was writing this letter. Paul understood the heavy responsibility of a married man in providing for his wife and children, and during this present distress in the city of Corinth, he believed that choosing to remain single and celibate was a more practical and sensible option, at least in the short term. Part of Paul's advice on singleness and celibacy in this chapter is being influenced by a local crisis, a local situation of some kind. But most of the advice that he gives to us in this chapter can be applied universally. Chapter In verse 29, for example, Paul speaks about the appointed time growing short. And this is a reference to the return of Christ that both Paul and the Corinthian church expected to happen at any time. As Christians who are living in the last days, that extended period of time between the first and the second coming of Christ, we are living in an age of great expectancy and an age of great urgency. From its earliest days, the Christian church has always lived with a joyful hope that our Lord Jesus could return at any time. And because that great hope persists to the present day, there is still a sense of urgency as we go about our mission. Or at least there ought to be a sense of urgency. As Christian believers, we know that the nighttime of God's judgment is coming very soon upon this world. We know that we must work while it is still daylight, while the grace of God is being held out to the lost. We also know that life here on earth is very short and that God expects us to be good and faithful stewards of the time He has given us. That's why Paul says in verse 29, From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of the world is passing away. Now, at first glance, you might look at those verses and think that Paul is contradicting what he said earlier in the chapter, but that is not the case at all. Paul is not suggesting here that married people should forego their family duties or neglect their wives and children because he's already told us plainly in previous verses we must fulfill those duties. We have no choice in that matter. Paul's teaching here on these verses is not permission to neglect our spouses and children, but rather he is making the point we Christians must ensure that our priorities are in the right order. 
He is stressing the vital importance of living lives, of making decisions in the light of our eternal destiny, in the light of the shortness of time that remains in this fallen world. Married Christians must fulfill their family obligations, but those duties in the home should never become an easy excuse for frittering time away or for failing to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The top priority of every believer, whether you are married or single, is to be busy about the work of God as we watch and wait for the return of the Lord. And one of the great temptations we all face in this present life is to get too comfortable in this broken world, to go about our daily business as though Jesus Christ were never coming back or as though we were never going to grow old and die. If we do not live our lives, if we do not live every day with the hope and the expectancy of Christ's return, with an awareness of the brevity and shortness of life, we will almost certainly fritter our lives away. We will squander our times. We will spend our resources on things that have no eternal value. It is so easy, friends, for our life here on earth to become centered upon our marriages and our children rather than centered upon Jesus Christ and His kingdom. It is so tempting for us to center our lives around entertainment and pleasure, to spend our days accumulating wealth and material possessions that we cannot take with us beyond the grave. Jesus warned His followers about the danger of wasting life on things of no eternal value, and I believe that Paul is warning us against the same danger here in this text. And in Paul's view, Married people are particularly prone to these pitfalls because of all the extra responsibilities that come along with married life. Responsibilities that can easily distract us from the main mission of serving Christ and making disciples. If we're not careful, our marriages, our families, our children can turn into idols that we worship and live for instead of worshiping and living for God. Because of that very real and present danger, Paul teaches us that the relative simplicity of the single life is a safeguard against idolatry. Because the truth of the matter is that the single man or woman does not have to spend their days thinking about how to please their spouse or to serve their children. A single person isn't running around to soccer practice and violin lessons and parent-teacher interviews and birthday parties. They're not cooking dinner every night for a small army of people. They're not at home resolving sibling rivalries or exercising corrective discipline. They're not taking their wife to shop at Ikea on Saturday morning. They've been set free from such things. They've been set free from these responsibilities. Because of that, they can focus on the things of God. There are fewer distractions to get in the way. Now, if you're here this morning as a single person, whether that's by choice or by circumstance, I want to urge you this morning, see this season of your life as an opportunity to, to serve Christ with an undivided heart. Single men and women, do not waste your life on frivolous, trivial things that have no eternal value. Spend your life, pour your life into the things of God, into the things that will last forever. As the book of Ecclesiastes says, and I used to have this verse on my wall when I was growing up, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. There's no greater tragedy, I think, than watching an entire generation of Christian 
20-somethings wasting the most productive time, the most energetic years of their lives on television, on movies, on video games, on meaningless, trivial forms of entertainment when they could be pouring their lives and their talents into Christian ministry and service. Now, of course, that isn't to say that you shouldn't have any fun as a single person, but it is to say that you must have your priorities straight. If you are single, you are never more free than you, you are right. You'll never be more free than you are right now. And I want to urge you, encourage you this morning, don't waste your freedom on things that will not last. Strive to live your Christian life with the right priorities in view, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trusting that everything else you need in this life will be added to you in God's perfect time and in God's perfect way. And if you are single here this morning and you have a strong desire to get married, Paul says numerous times in this chapter, there is nothing wrong with that desire. You are free to marry as long as it is in the Lord. That phrase in the Lord, by the way, means that you must marry another believer. But just make sure before you take that important step that you have a realistic understanding of what marriage will demand from you, a realistic perspective of what marriage is meant to be. Singles, before you pursue marriage, before you go through with an engagement, make very sure you have carefully counted the cost and checked your motives. And even more important than that, make certain that you wait for that special person that God has prepared. Never forget some good advice that a mentor from Campus Crusade for Christ once gave when I was still a single person in university. He told us single students to run after God as hard as we possibly could and every once in a while to glance over our shoulders to see who is keeping up. And one day I was running, as I was running after God, I looked over my shoulder and Leslie was standing there. Single brothers and sisters, in seeking a marriage partner, make very sure that you wait for someone who will spur you on in your walk with the Lord and not someone who will drag you down. Simply finding an attractive person, simply finding another Christian who goes to church is not good enough. You must find a Christian spouse who has a passionate heart for God. You must find a Christian spouse who has their priorities in the right order. You know, there are all kinds of benefits to remaining single and celibate, but we also need to acknowledge that there are some difficulties. One of the great difficulties that single people often face is the challenge that comes with sexual temptation. And although we all face this challenge to one degree or another in one form or another, Paul tells the singles here in this chapter one possible solution to this issue is marriage itself. Better to marry than to burn, Paul says in verse 9. And it's true. A healthy marriage can go a long way to alleviate temptation towards sexual sin. But that being observed, let us not conclude that getting married will remove that temptation altogether because I can tell you that it, that it won't. Married people struggle sexually just as single people struggle sexually. And because of that, we must all look to the Lord for help. We must all believe the promise of God's Word that He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. As Christian men and women, we are not slaves to the sin nature. And through the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we are able to put sin to death. We are able to say no to temptation. 
doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy to do it, but it does mean that it is possible. It is a battle that we can win through the mighty prevailing power of Christ. Another difficulty that comes with a single life is the reality of unfulfilled longings and desires that stubbornly nag and tug at our hearts. There is within the human heart a longing for true intimacy. There's a longing for sexual intimacy, a longing for emotional intimacy, a longing to be fully known and fully loved by another human being. Beyond that, many of us not only have a longing for marriage, but also for children. A longing to hold that little baby in our arms. And perhaps the thought of not getting married, the thought of not having children, overwhelms you with a deep sense of sadness and grief. Although I'd like to be able to tell you this morning, that marriage and children will always come to those who wait, to those who persistently, persistently pray. That is not always the way it works. Sometimes for reasons we do not fully understand, God does not answer our prayers in the way that we expect. He does not fulfill our longings in the way that we hoped, hoped He would. There are some singles out there who desperately want to be married but will never find Mr. Right no matter how long they wait no matter how hard they pray. And on the flip side, there's some married people who thought they did find the right person only to be very deeply hurt and very deeply disappointed by their spouse, by a marriage that didn't work out. You know, hard as this may be for us to, to hear, unfulfilled desires, unfulfilled longings in this life are a part of life in a broken world. And difficult as that is for us to accept, these unfulfilled desires and longings serve a positive purpose in our lives because they remind us that this world is not our final destination. C.S. Lewis once said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And indeed we were. The bad news we all have to grapple with is that complete satisfaction will never be a part of our, our experience here in this broken and fallen world. Whether you are married today, whether you are single today, there will be parts of your life here on earth that will be disappointing. There will be parts of your life that will be very hard to bear. The good news in all of this is that Jesus Christ is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And the good news in all of this is that Jesus Christ can and does fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts, the deepest cravings of our souls. He is the only bread that will truly satisfy our hunger. He is the only water that will truly quench our thirst. Marriages, romantic relationships here on earth are temporary and imperfect even at their best. They are until death do we part. But praise be to God, our temporary imperfect marriages, our unfulfilled longings for true intimacy point us forward towards something that is far better, something that is far grander. Eternal union, eternal communion with Jesus Christ. That begins the moment you respond to His gracious initiative and His sovereign call, and it lasts into eternity. And so be encouraged this morning, brothers and sisters, whether you are single or whether you are married, that one day you will be part of the perfect wedding ceremony. 
that perfect future day when all of us will be gathered together in the kingdom of God for the marriage supper of the Lamb. But in the meantime, we need to keep singing that old gospel song. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, You know I have no friend like You. If heaven's not my home, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Amen.